0: Welcome back to Solving Water Asylum Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Holloway, and I've got another great series to share with you. When you think of construction and mining, what kinds of words come to mind? Maybe diggers, dump trucks, coal are some common ones, but did you know that water plays a crucial role in the construction process? Water in these industries can either be a necessity or a nuisance. Either way, experts are needed to manage this water efficiently, effectively, and sustainably. Whether it's bypassing water to complete a construction project or dewatering an open pit mine operation, in this series, recorded live from ConExpo in Las Vegas, I interview customers, distributors, and Xylem experts about all the ways we address water for these industries. Hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed the interviews. I'd like to welcome Mike Ivory to the show. He is the director of Service Solutions and Business Development for Xylem. Welcome. Hi. You've been on the show once before. That's correct. One of the very first episodes. So, deep cuts. We're back here at a trade show. <laughs> that one was Weftech, I think. Yeah, um, yeah, it
1: was Weftech. I don't remember what year here. it was, but it was a while ago.
0: I think 2019. Okay. So, it's been a little minute since we've caught up, and there's been a lot of changes to your role over that period of time and then also I mean, just your experience with the company. So if you could just give our listeners a little bit of your background, that would be great.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, without going too deep into it, you know, I, I've been with Xylem now for roughly 15 years. I started a, in an outside sales role, dressed through that role, took on a project management role, essentially supporting oil and gas fracking operations. Uh, it was a temporary assignment I did for 11 months. Um, once that was complete, I, I took on a role as the uh, district manager of submersible sales basically supporting the east eastern half of the United States Uh, with our submersible pump solutions. And then since 2017, I was in the role of Northeast Regional Sales Manager. So responsibility for our entire breadth of product in the Northeast portion of the United States. And then just recently, I mean, within the last week or so, uh, I got promoted to a new role, which is what you mentioned, director, service solutions, business development, where I'm gonna work with a lot of our niche businesses uh, to, to try to grow that and see what we can do to help our customers in those markets. So one of the main, one of my people that I'll be working with in that role yeah, specializes in mining which I think is really relevant to to the show we're doing here right sure yeah sure
0: before we get to that though I wanted to ask you about the services piece so yeah. you're not the first person today that I've spoken with who has service solutions in their title sure you know what's the, the driver behind really incorporating services into everything we do
1: yeah so I, I think the biggest thing right is if you look back I mean we've always been a services business right but we've never really called ourselves that I mean when you look at some of our competitors you know they are selling and renting products but they're not applying it they're not out there day-to-day working hand-in-hand with our customers in the field to utilize and apply the products so I think that's really where the, the separation and the designation of service solutions comes from is the fact that you know we are working hand-in-hand hand with our customers. We have boots on the ground, and we're helping, to, helping them to complete their tasks. And I think that really gets at the heart of, of what the Service Solutions nomenclature is, is all about.
0: So then, that's been kind of the thread that's run through a lot of my interviews here. I think services is, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. And the more interviews I do, I am just, it confirms, reconfirms that for me. Sure. So we are here at ConExpo, so I wanted to get back to this discussion about mining and construction, right? Right? Yep. So I think Con Expo it makes sense, construction industry. It's also Con Ag for aggregate. And as somebody who is pretty familiar with the business. I still had a hard time understanding what that was for a while. So I'm wondering if you could kind of help break down what the aggregate industry is. Um, I know it often is confused a little bit with mining. Yeah. I mean it is mining, but yeah. can you help the listeners understand?
1: Yeah, so I think you hit on it precisely is, is there is definite confusion amongst people that aren't in the industry directly to the differences between mining and aggregate. And really it's synonymous, right? You, aggregate is product that comes out of the ground i.e. it needs to be mined right it just doesn't lay there on top of the ground and you scoop it up Um, so really when I say when I think aggregate I think mining when I think mining I think aggregate coal gold cobalt all this other stuff right but if you just think about aggregate the only way to get it and when we're talking about aggregate, it's stone, right? The only way to get that stone out of the ground is to mine it out of the ground. And that could be a surface mine where you have an open pit that you're digging down into the ground and pulling product out. Or it could be an underground mine where you have a, essentially a hole that goes into the ground that the workers go into um, and it's truly an underground mining situation. And, and in both of those cases, you're bringing out the same product, which is aggregate. It could be limestone, sandstone, whatever the, whatever the product might be, but some type of stone from the ground to the surface.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. We're talking about stone and sure. bringing it out of the ground, which is not something we specifically do at Xylem. So yeah. what is the role that we play in these industries?
1: Yeah, so I mean, there there's a the impact I should say of water in the aggregate industry is is vast. I mean, the first thing that most people think about is water is a nuisance, right? And so we do a lot of work to handle that nuisance water, whether it be in an underground mining situation or in a surface mine. Typically, and especially in when you're mining for limestone, there's vast gaps in the mines, in the limestone deposits. And then those gaps is water. When you think limestone, you think water. And so as they dig, the customers dig to, to produce that product, they often encounter water that needs to be handled because it, it's essentially covering up, covering up more of their product. Um, so we do a lot of water handling just to get nuisance water out of the way. And, and some of that water is a continual stream of water, so it's not just a static pocket of water that once you get rid of it, it's gone. It will continue to replenish itself. So that requires the need for our services to one, pump that water down, and then to maintain that low water level so that the customers can continue mining for their product. The other piece of it is what what I like to call process water, right? And that could be water that's used for cooling. That could be water that's used for dust suppression on the surface. or or even in in the mine, but basically using water for the process. And that's a little different scenario because when we're getting rid of nuisance water, it's typically large volumes that we need to get out of the way quickly. Uh, When we're dealing with process water, it's typically smaller volumes of water at at a higher pressure rating. And so that requires some different products that we have to offer, as opposed to the products that we would use to to cover the nuisance water. But essentially in every aspect of, of aggregate mining, Water is making an impact, whether it's towards the process or detracting from their process, water's involved.
0: That's a great overview. One thing that stuck out to me, another thing I, I learned when I do these interviews, and I actually had a chance to visit Quarry outside of Nashville last year. Okay. And so the importance of dust suppression and what that takes and why is it such a focus? I mean, for obvious reasons, it inhibits. View right so like in terms of just being able to see what you're doing yeah and you have a lot of dust that's not good but are there other issues that 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 can cause
1: yeah i mean at the end of the day you know dust is an air pollutant right and so when mines or quarries have dust issues they're, they're often approached by the epa for the amount of dust that they're putting out and if they can't control that dust, you know, fines can be levied against them, and, and, and they're pretty hardy fines. Um, so controlling that dust from an environmental protection side of things is probably more important than just you know so I can see better out my windshield. Um, you know, dust has negative effects on the air that we breathe, on the air that other living things breathe. Um, so there's an importance to keeping that under control. From I don't want to necessarily say sustainability, but from a from a life cycle standpoint, it's just healthy.
0: Have you been involved in the construction and aggregate industries at Xylem for the duration of yeah. your career?
1: Yeah. Yeah, from the entire my entire career here, I've been involved in construction and aggregate. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So,
0: how have you seen? What are some of the changes you've seen over your time?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a great question, and and. I mean, I think you need to break that into two parts, right? The construction piece and the aggregate piece. Okay. So we'll just stay on aggregate for a minute, right? The, the, the changes that we've seen there are more around the efficient management of their water, um, and I'm talking about the nuisance water here at this point. So, you know, 15 years ago when I started, you, you'd roll into a quarry and there would be, you know hundreds of pumps sitting around all over the place trying to maintain the, the, the water levels in that quarry so that customers get get the product out. And they may be diesel-driven pumps, gasoline-driven pumps, electric-driven pumps, whatever pumps that seem that they could get their hands on just to get their water out of the way, right? The money that is made there is, is on the product. So it, the cost at that time really wasn't looked at as long as they could get the water out of the way. Um, the progression I've seen now with the quarries is that they want to more efficiently manage that water so that one, they don't need, you know, 50 pumps to do it they could do it with two or three and then two they want to do it in a more cost-effective manner uh, so that they can improve their bottom lines so you know we've come in and been able to design pump systems when we're partnering with a company to say okay you have this nuisance water in all these locations how do we get that to a singular spot or sump And then from that sum, how can we employ a pumping system in here that's one, not only efficient, but two, uses many less pumps uh, to accomplish the same goal. So in often cases, we've taken quarries from a a 30 pump dewatering system. When I say dewatering, I'm talking about getting water out of the way to a three or four pump dewatering system, cut their operating costs in half or more. And then also by decreasing the number of pumps required to do that, you really take down maintenance costs, which things aren't really looked at like that. But when you can start talking to customers about what the maintenance of all these assets costs, it's, it really gets astronomical. So when we can really hone that in, it makes a big difference. And then, you know, the advent of switching from a lot of the diesel driven pumps, which a lot of these quarries and mines were used to traditionally over the past 30, 40 years, to, to talking about the use of electric drive pumps, it really has a multitude of effects, right? One, you're decreasing carbon footprint, right? You don't have all these diesel engines out there just blaring away, putting exhaust into the atmosphere. Two, the cost of electricity is significantly lower right now than the cost of diesel fuel. And then the third part of it, and that goes to the maintenance piece, is with the electric pumps, the the preventative maintenance of those units is significantly less than the preventative maintenance of a diesel unit, primarily because you don't have an engine to maintain, right? The electric motor takes very minimal maintenance, if any at all, you know, a couple shots of grease every couple months and it's good to go as compared to oil and fuel filters and air filters every 10 days if you're running around the clock on a diesel engine. So you really decrease those costs overall by switching to electrically driven pumps. Now the trade-off is there's usually some upfront costs to to get power into the location and enough power to run the pumps. But the payoff is, is pretty quick then going to look at the other thing right the construction industry how has that changed i would say it's changing similarly with a push towards electric driven equipment but that is somewhat opportunistic because as you know all construction sites aren't located beside you know large sources of power, and that, that power isn't readily available. So we still have you know the need for diesel diesel-driven end suction pumps in a lot of construction applications. Uh, they still work really well, and I, and I think we've done a good job as a company, you know, making sure that we're using the best available technology out there to, to lower our emissions. We've actually started redesigning a lot of our signature pump models to use lower horsepower engines which means less emissions, which means, means less can fuel consumption. And the reason we've done that is just, you know, we've looked back over the history of our products and said, okay, where are most of our customers running these units? So if you look at a 6-inch pump, for example, standard CD150, one of our hallmark products, typically we had a 72, 74-horsepower engine on that pump. And when we look at the data, where most customers run that is around 40 horsepower. So over the last couple of years, we've taken two steps backwards in the engine size and we're still getting the same performance out of the pump and the customers are still still satisfied. So we went from 72 to 64 and we went from 62 to 49 horsepower engines. And it's a significant cost savings both in the operating costs and the upfront cost of the purchase of that unit.
0: What are some of the applications that we support in construction?
1: Yeah, so we could talk about this for hours, right? If you break that down into, I guess it would be two or three main groups. One is is sewer bypass. And right that's where where we cut our teeth in the rental business. Um, And it's where we will continue to, I think, see the majority of our business. So anytime, you know, sewer lines need replaced or there's an upgrade at a wastewater treatment plant and and water needs to continue to flow, you know, we can show up and and pump that water around the work area um, so that the contractors can continue doing the work that they need to do uh, without having to worry about the, the sewage inflow. The second is general dewatering, right? And and that, that's a really broad topic. But you know, anytime people are going to be putting shovels into the ground, right? Digging with excavators. And they're in an area where there's high high water table. Think Florida, for example, right? You can't dig three feet into the ground in Florida without running into some sort of groundwater. So we offer a lot of solutions for groundwater management, whether that may be well point dewatering systems, uh, submersible pumps and drilled wells. We've got a lot of rotary load pumps now that we're using to, to do general dewatering. But basically, we're making the site dry so that the contractor can work in the dry uh, and not in the mud uh, so we do a lot of that and then we've come along recently well i shouldn't say recently but more recently the opportunities that are rising for you know temporary fire pumping and and when you think about that it's twofold so in the in the initial construction basis you know when we're when we're going to go build a new building right the building's ready to go except that you don't have a fire pump so You know we can't have occupancy without a fire suppression system in place well we can rent you pumps to make up that need until your true fire pump comes in so we've seen an uptick in business from that Um, and then we've got a lot of aged buildings just like our infrastructure we've got a lot of old buildings in the country and you know those fire pumps that were installed 50 40 50 years ago they need to be replaced and replacing them isn't just as easy as snapping your fingers and a new one shows up there's long lead times on almost everything right now right so to order a new fire pump could be you know months if not longer and so while that's going on we can supply a temporary system in a temporary fire pump system to keep your building open. So we've been getting a lot out of that recently as well, too.
0: Wow. What about digital solutions? So I was talking to someone earlier today about just the old standard of, you know, having a manned pump watch mm-hmm. versus bringing in some of these remote monitoring capabilities, are you seeing a shift in, in that it's becoming more common with the digital solutions?
1: Yeah, I, and I wouldn't say that I'm seeing it to the point where replacing a lot of manned pump watches with, with digital solutions, although I think that makes the most sense, right? And that's something that we need to do a better job of is talking to our our customers and ultimately their customers about you know the digital solution as opposed to the man pump watch because it's a big expense to have a man on the job site. But what I do see is with our digital solutions, whether it be FST, which is our Field Smart technology that comes standard on all of our new godwin drive primes now or with our remote monitoring and control capabilities which is essentially a a plc that networks a lot of pumps together and gives customers the ability to view that that pump system there is a peace of mind that customers are getting from that when they go home at the end of the day they can pull up on any web-enabled device the pump system and look at is the pump running or not what speed is it pumping at? what's the fuel levels are there any alarms on that pump and they, they can feel comfortable that what's out there is performing as they would expect it. Additionally, we can set up any sorts of alarms or triggers. You know, if this happens, then call this person and say, hey, we, you might want to take a look at things. Um, so it, it is getting adopted. And I, and I think it's it's the peace of mind, but it's also it's also generational, right? Um, everybody knows that the baby boomers are starting to retire. And those people are being replaced by, you know, younger, um, less tenured uh, employees that grew up with technology um, and they so they use these type of technologies to monitor anything and monitor everything in their homes you think of ring doorbells stuff like that that's what these, this newer generation is, is used to and I think it makes perfect sense uh, to give them the capability to do what they're comfortable doing rather than to force them to do things the way things used to be done. Um, so it's, it's it's been a journey for me you know I, I've, I've learned a lot through it. And I I think it makes good sense to equip your pumping system with the capability to monitor it. Yeah, it it just makes good sense. Yeah, and I
0: think it's, uh, to your earlier point about services it's just another arrow in the quiver right so the ability to check pump status and even make some decisions depending on what's happening from a remote location is just another another way we can help service and support
1: well yeah and I mean the other thing is that you know there's a plethora of data that we can collect by doing this right so you know, if a customer wants to see what were my flow rates for the day, what were my instantaneous flow rates, you know, how much water was I moving, when, when did the pumps experience, you know, high temperature, you name it, there, there's a way that we can monitor it. And we have a great controls engineering team to work with to design a, a monitoring system if it's different than our standard, right, that will give the data that customers want to see, whatever that data may be. Um, it just takes a little you know, cooperation with the customer to, to identify those metrics that they want to be able to read out on and then design a system that will report that to them. Um, but it allows them then to take that data and make intelligent business decisions going forward.
0: Yeah, that's also very true. This has been really insightful. I uh, really appreciate it. I mean, I have, I'm have. i on the rental and services team in the marketing group, and I even learned a lot of stuff today. Sure. So appreciate that. One more question for you. Yeah. What is the most important thing you've learned in the water business so far?
1: That's a tough question. You know, I was talking about this, might have been yesterday with someone. I, I think it's probably the the fragility of the world's water, right? It's something that we we take for granted and you know I'm from the northeast part of the country and water is abundant you know rarely is there drought conditions where I'm at right and so I think that I'd, I definitely have taken it and probably still take it for granted to, to a certain degree um, but I mean even we're out here in Las Vegas right now right and, and flying in here I flew right over Lake Mead and the Hoover Dam and looked down and you can see how low the water is Um. And, and driving over here in the Uber, I was talking to the Uber driver about it. I said, you know, well, hopefully, you know, with the snow that California's getting in the rain and, and everything, that that might help you. And he said, well, yeah, it might, because they won't be pulling as much from our water sources, so we may be able to see that those levels come up. Now, whether that's accurate or not, I, I'm not one to, to specify that. Um, but when you just look at that one example of Lake Mead and how low it is right now, and think, my goodness, ha, how, how much how much lower is it going to go? And then, you know, when is Las Vegas going to run out of water? Right. So I, I think we as a people don't do a good enough job of looking at how critical water is worldwide, as opposed to, you know, when we flush our own toilets or turn on our own faucets and it's there, right? Not everybody has that, has that luxury. And I think we just, we really need to be thinking about that and working to manage that water more effectively so that, you know, future generations aren't high and dry, so to speak. It's
0: great. Thank you so much for being here and um, for talking us through everything. And hopefully you'll come back again. Thank you.
1: Yep. No problem. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this installment of Solving Water Asylum podcast. Also, a big thank you to our guests who took the time to chat with me and share their experiences with us. Once again, I learned something new that continues to shape my view of the importance of water in the world. Please check each episode's show notes for links to additional information and my email address, or find me, Amanda Holloway, on LinkedIn for questions, feedback, or to be a guest on the show. Solving Water is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Stream, download, and subscribe now.